Uh, well, we can turn it down just a little bit, like I said. How's oh my it? Goodness, man. How's that? Hold on. Yeah, that's good. Okay, good. Can you am, am I get on the on the mic? Yeah, you're good on the mic. Ooh. Do I have to talk like this? No, you just gotta be close enough that uh, you can hear both me and you in it. I can hear you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty. That's that's a good enough distance, I suppose. Or do you want me to go a little closer? Well, go a little closer and see how it sounds. Okay, now how's that? That's pretty good. Okay. All right. I've never seen someone watch as much TikTok as you. I doubt that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hey, everybody, welcome to Hip and Humble. Uh, I'm Aram. And I'm Steve. Uh, today is uh, a little bit different, as you can tell, because my PIC is uh, is, my, is now my dad. This is my dad, Stephen Rice. For a long time now. Yeah, uh, at least at least twenty seven years. Yep. Yeah. Uh, pretty much. Pretty much my whole life. I don't. I don't remember him ever not being there. Actually. Well, except, I, you know, except for all the deployments and everything like that. But except for when he wasn't. Yeah, except for when he wasn't. But you know, that is that is what it is. I'm uh, I'm glad he I'm glad he did it. I, as I got older, of course, I appreciated it more and more. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So what are we talking about today? So actually today we're going to go, we're going to kind of dive into stuff that you have experience with, um, which is aviation. There are a lot of really interesting and cool technologies and stuff that would be considered antique nowadays that you used at the very beginning of your career and have seen the changes as they progress throughout your career. You mean like tube radios? Tube radios? What's a tube radio? <laughs> Well, back in the day, mm-hmm. radios had big, giant, or smaller tubes that uh, vacuum tubes to do the, you know. Again, I'm not a radio guy, but they had vacuum tubes so that uh, they could, you know, receive the signals and things like that. And then they switched to solid state and things like that. So, yeah. you know, then transistor, the transistor radio hit and. You know, mm-hmm. then we switched over to those. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, our uh, our shop right now. By the way, if you guys are listening, please go ahead and check out our Etsy shop. It's Hip and Humble Antiques. If you guys are in the in the Virginia or the Oklahoma area, make sure to go down to the rink and look for our booth changing seasons. Also, go to downtown Fredericksburg, Oldies but Goodies. Check out uh, our booth down there, Hip and Humble, and our booth in. Boswell's Corner Antiques in Stafford, Virginia. Um, also, I just want to do a shout out for our Patreon page real quick while I'm thinking about it. If you guys like what you're hearing, if you guys want to hear more, please go ahead and think about contributing to Patreon. We all, we're starting to offer different promotions. We're thinking about different giveaways. Um, also, we want to you know, start different polls to see what you guys really like listening to and so on and so forth. So yeah, please go ahead and, and look us up and uh, and give us your feedback. Tell us what you want to hear. But anyways, back to the radios. Man, you tried to derail my thoughts, didn't you? <laughs> Not quite. That's pretty easy to do. Oh, no. But, so speaking of radios, we got a couple of the old-timey radios down at the shops. Mm-hmm. What we found in, uh, you know, they're not the... The old tube type, but they are some of the oldies, but goodies, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but. That play you get in there. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that we used to have that I would love to be able to collect would be the old, uh, we called them whiskey compasses. Because back in the day, 
they actually use whiskey for to make the the uh, inside the liquid so that the compass would fly. Would, Why would, was that? Would float. Well, because it's you know wouldn't freeze in water because you know at that altitude, mm-hmm. you know water would freeze. So whiskey has a much lower freezing point. Now it's like an antifreeze or a, you know a clear coolant or something like that. Hmm. But uh, we they called them the whiskey compass because sometimes when all of your instruments would go out, all you would have left would be your whiskey compass. Oh wow! How yeah. often did all of your instruments go out? Well, for us, I'd like to say never. <laughs> yeah, but. Then I would be lying. Yeah. Oh, and uh, for reference, guys, my dad was a navigator, so uh, he he, uh, he flew for twenty five years. Well, when did your flight gates come up? They were like I flew for uh, my flying gates were twenty twenty years. Twenty years. He flew for twenty years for the Air Force. So very cool. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because uh, I went in later in life. Or I went in. I went into the Navy and I flew. I didn't fly, but I uh, I swam in submarines. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We were both doing kind of the same thing, just in opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I was over the air, and you were underwater. So yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yep, definitely very cool though. But a lot of people uh, collect the whiskey compasses, and uh, I, I'm sure those are quite expensive. And if you found one off of a, an actual old uh, airplane, that would be quite rare and quite collectible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you guys have those whiskey compasses whenever you first started flying? Well, they still have them. Oh, okay. It's it, it's not a it's not an actual whiskey compass, but it's like I said, they've updated the the it's called a manual compass. Mm-hmm. You still have to have it for backup just in case you know you lose power or you know something happens. You know you get shot at, right? Uh, and right. Uh, you know everything dies except for your whiskey compass. You still need to know which direction you need to run. <laughs> yeah, I guess knowing which direction you're flying is probably a good idea. Yep. Unless you're over the poles, then you don't know because of all the all the magnetic variation. That's interesting. Well, it was very similar for us. We went into the Arctic Circle, and I remember that was a big ordeal. We got our our um, blue nose. If you if anybody out there is military uh, or especially or specifically Navy, you know the uh, different uh, rites of passage, if you will, the blue nose shellback and those are the only two i experienced i'm not going to speak to the others but (laughs) yeah that that was pretty neat and then the other thing that we used uh during my career which you know i think we were one of the very very last platforms to ever use was the manual sextant okay and uh you know a sextant is what you use to chart the stars right you know that's what they use like you know columbus used to sail across the ocean Hmm. you know uh, there was a bunch of smart guys back then that developed uh, the star charts. They hmm. had the position of all the charts. You know, they had, you know, declinations of where the stars were in the sky. You know, they even tracked the sun. So I don't know that I'd want to be the guy who, who wrote that all down and compiled it. But, uh, you know, the books that we got were updated monthly or bimonthly, something like that. And, you know, to me, they were just magic. Uh, for reference, guys, the earliest per- the earliest uh, Western catalog of stars was created by the Greek astronomer, ast- excuse me, astronomer Hipparchus around 129 BC. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you about something in a minute. That, another magic, but uh, so the sextant is essentially you uh, you go to the star books at night and you can take uh, 
positions off of the sextant. You you pick a star in the star book. You do your pre-computations. You know it uh, tells you where to look. Mm-hmm. You know where to point the sextant. You know what, which is a, what does a sextant look like? A sextant, the old school ones uh, look like a like a a, tele, a telescope. You know, you look into the scope, except for the telescope pointed up. Huh. And the ones that we had were a bar that went through the the top of the the roof of the airplane, and actually, you know, a hole opened up in the airplane. So people always get scared of holes opening up in the airplane. Well, we did it on purpose. You know, every flight. You know. Oh, there you go. So it's it's not a big deal, and it turns into a giant vacuum cleaner too. But that's another story. Yeah. Well, that's that's air pressure and all that good stuff. Right. But. So a sextant, you know, it, it, it goes up through the, the tube and then uh, you look into the viewfinder. Mm-hmm. And if you did your pre-computations right, boom, there's a star. And then you take, you start your timing and you time it for two minutes and you keep your, your declination, which is your altitude of the star. And then you record that and then you use your computations to determine where you're at on the map. Yeah, I remember the first time you had told me about that. We were uh, we were out camping. We so my dad and I and my brothers we do this thing called Frontiersman Camping Fellowship, and it's uh, period camping. So we'll go out and uh, you know we basically pick a character anywhere anywhere in the Frontiersman era of uh, the United States. Whenever we were still uh, they were still everybody was still migrating west and exploring, and and uh, a lot of the a lot of the states were still you know not developed at all, and and. Uh, we set up canvas tents. There's different, uh, events, black powder, um, uh, black powder rifle shooting, tomahawk and knife throwing and different, just different events and things like that. But anyways, one day we were sitting out there and, um, dad had come up to me and we were looking out at the stars. We were up in New York and, uh, it was beautiful out there. The sky was just absolutely gorgeous, you know. And he looked and had told me, basically, he could tell me where we were based on those stars. <laughs> and I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Yep. I think uh, you said earlier, basically, you have to, you'd have to calculate to find the position of whatever star. Right. And so, <clears throat> you know, one, me- you know, one method is it gives you, you know, this goes into navigation techniques and things like that, but, uh, you know, if you if you do one position off of one star, it gives you a line of bearing. Mm-hmm. If you pick two stars, it gives you two lines of bearing. And then if you shoot three stars, it'll give you a triangular line of bearing. So, and you got to pick them at the correct angles so that it forms a triangle. So you know, you look at a star off to your north, one off to the west, one off to the you know southeast, and that way it gives you a triangle to tell you exactly where you're at. Right, triangulating the position. Exactly. That's, hey, where that, hey. that's where that comes from. I got that right off the dome. And so a lot of guys actually collected those sextants. Mm-hmm. Whenever we whenever we quit using them on the airplane, a lot of the guys were, you know, they snagged them and said, hey, if, if you're not going to use these anymore, can I have this? You know, and they legally uh, gave them to them. So. Wow. Yeah. And That'd then, be a really cool thing to collect. Yeah. And, you know, they were powered by aircraft power too. So, you know, mm-hmm. had a little flashlight on them and. All kinds of cool stuff. By aircraft power, that is by air or aircraft. So you know, aircraft have electrical power. Yeah. So they plugged into the airplane so that you could, you know, use the timer. The timer was electrical. The 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 light inside the bubble was electrical. Okay. You know, it, when it's dark in the airplane, and of course, you know, everything in the airplane at night is red. Right. Because you don't want to lose your night vision. Right. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So then the other magic portion was uh, in our airplane, we had two navigators. Oh, okay. The the navigator one at the time was a systems guy, so he did everything with all the navigation equipment, and the navigator two did everything manually. Oh, okay. So that means he had to use the sextant, you know, he had to, you know, do what we call dead reckoning, which is, you know, you just use math, you know, simple math to calculate your position everywhere you are. And it was That's, quite involved. That sounds like it. And then... There was one more method that we had to use when we were crossing over over the you know the ocean, and there wasn't any land to use a radar fix, which you know if you have a radar you can see land masses and pick out towns and you know mm-hmm. things like that and you can get a position based on where that town's at. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're over the ocean, there's nothing, so we had to use a, a system called pressure. And again, we were one of the few people who actually still used pressure. So you take. Uh, Why was that? Well, because, I mean, there's more updated methods to do it, but we didn't have them. And that's why we had a NAV2 is to back up the system. I see. Even though the system was usually perfect, Mm -hmm. the Navigator 2 was there to ensure that the system was perfect. Uh, That makes sense. Because it's the military. Well, with the nature of what we did. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's military stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But the pressure was uh, interesting because you have a, a radar 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 altimeter, which mm-hmm. takes your absolute height over the ground. So if you're 30 feet off the ground, it shows 30 feet. And then you have your pressure altitude, which is based on the air pressure. So at 30,000 feet, you may actually only be at 28,000 feet because of the air pressure. Because once you get up there, you have to set a standard air pressure so that all the airplanes remain at the altitude they're supposed to remain at. So they are deconflicted by altitude. I see. Now, when you say from the ground, if you're, you're talking about over the ocean, so would that be over this, over sea level? Over sea level. So okay. the, so a Doppler radar would measure the absolute height and then you would compare that to a, a pressure altitude. And then the mathematicians back in the early, you know, 1000 BC created the K factor. You threw that into this formula, and it would give you where you were at on the chart just based on your pressure. Wow. It was crazy. It was magic. Sounds like it. I mean, it's, anything that, invo- that involves that much math is magic to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the K factor is pretty cool. It's defined as the ratio between the material thickness and the neutral fiber axis, T and lowercase t. I.e., a part of the material that bends without being compressed or elongated. Bend allowance is fundamental parameter to calculate sheet elongation. So I think that... That's not the one. That's not the one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't, I say that didn't sound right. Yeah. But, uh, so those are a couple of, uh, things that you know would be neat to collect is uh you know the old sextant and the old compasses uh, you know a lot of world war ii that's all they had was the compasses yeah you know the old uh, b-17 bombers and b-25 bombers you know they didn't have a lot of you know great stuff the the norton bomb site was like a miracle of its day really yeah Oh, be, just because they, they just because they, they couldn't even get there because <laughs> it's amazing it, that they got there it did the calculations of the bombing for you wow yeah, so it was it was you know again it was magic. Hmm. So, yeah, math is magic. People remember that. 
So those are some things that I'd like to collect, you know, the, the old compasses and aircraft stuff. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's not always readily available. Oh, no, no, no. And some of it could actually be, uh, you know, a little bit uh, hazardous, I guess, you know, depending on How so? you know, what, uh, what materials they were made with, you know, because, you know, they didn't think anything about using radium dials or, hmm. you know, you know, because that was radioactive. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> radium is a little bit radi- radioactive. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. On the submarine, um, we... So our uh, my submarine was nuclear, obviously, and we had to wear these um, basically. It's basically a, um, a tracker for radiation on your belt, and you had to send it in to get evaluated every six months or so, so you'd see how much radiation you were um, exposed to. Basically, it's an insurance device for the Navy, so that in twenty years, you know, if I got cancer or something like that, I can't point to the Navy and say, "Hey, you pay all my medical bills because." <laughs> Because you, I got radiation from you 20 years ago. Right. So, but it was, it was a cool little thing. A lot of the nukes always liked it because it, after you get to a, a certain, uh, certain level, you're, you're not supposed to be on the boat for a little while. I think you, you basically have to not, not be near the boat or not be near the engine. But I mean, the amount of radiation that you got there that you would have to get to that was, was uh it was pretty I mean it wasn't a lot because realistically that that low level of radiation even consistently I mean it's gonna mess with you but it's not it's right. not gonna do any serious damage. Well you get that much from your cell phone. Yeah, yeah. Well it's a little more than your cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> but we digress. But we digress. Yeah, so another thing we were gonna move it kinda talk about was uh the different uniforms that uh, have, have, you have experienced or the ones that uh, came before you. I think uh, specifically you were talking about the B-2 bombers in World War II. Did they have flight suits back then or was it just the bomber jackets? Well, the B-2 is modern. So, you, I mean, the B-2 B, B and the B-52 is is. You know, 60s. Okay. But we're talking the B-25 and the B-17. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Those type of um, – they did have a type of flying suit. It was really their fatigues with a bomber jacket. Mm-hmm. And then essentially it was wool clothing because when you're at altitude, you don't understand exactly how cold it is up there. Mm-hmm. It can be – you know, they were at 20,000, 30,000 feet maybe – and at that altitude, especially in Europe, it can be minus 30, minus 40 degrees up there. Oh, wow. And then, you know, add the, the, the fact that those, you're flying in a metal can. Yeah. So you're flying in an ice box. Yeah, pretty so much. Of course, they're trying to dress as warm as they can. That's why you see the old war movies where it looks like they're dressed, you know, so hot, but it wasn't. Yeah. I never thought about that. I never thought about that. I have a funny little, uh, Antidote. We used to have uh, what we called the boom refrigerator because we, you know, in our airplane we had a boom seat where the boom operator would have sat if we would have had a boom. Uh-huh. But the uh, boom fridge was a place where we lifted up the insulation and put drinks under, like water or soda, mm-hmm. uh, and against the skin of the airplane. Yeah, and you'd put something in there for maybe twenty minutes, uh-huh. and then it would come out almost frozen. <laughs> it was like a quick chill. Wow, that's crazy. And uh, the coolest thing was in the desert 
we would have these, you know, plastic water bottles because, you know, they always tell you to drink water because it's, you know, 125 degrees out there. I wonder why they try, tell you to drink water. Yeah. That's weird. But uh, we were – had a, we would stick, you know, six or ten waters by the skin and, you know, whenever the water's at 100 degrees, it takes a little bit to cool it down. But, a little uh, bit, yeah. The, uh, um, so as after you would be on the mission for, you know, a couple hours – we used to take out the water bottles, just gently twist open the cap, mm-hmm. and then thump the bottle. Yeah. And it would turn into ice. It would crystallize right in front of your eyes. Wow. It's pretty, pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. That's really cool. What did you, or how many times did you – you went to the desert I don't know, at least every other year. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually lost count of how many times I went over there. Yeah. So, but, uh, but speaking back, of uniforms, yeah, back to the uniforms. Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, the air force, you know, obviously for those history buffs, you know, that the air force came, was derived from the army, the mm-hmm. army air corps. Yeah. And so it became a separate service in 1947. And so, you know, that was essentially after the, after the world war two. So it's a pretty young, pretty young service, not as young as space force, but <laughs> I digress. Yeah. The, the uh, so the Air Force was, uh, you know, they kind of had the Army esque uniforms, mm-hmm. and then I don't know when it was, probably in the fifties, whenever the strategic, strategic Air Command guys took over, they kind of started switching over to a more independent type uniform, mm-hmm. you know, kind of getting away from the brown Army look and over to the blue and the, you know, and then. For a while, they had uh, the maintainers wore what we called pickles. Pickles. Pickles, because it looked like a dill pickle sitting out there, because it was just straight olive drab. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and then, uh, then of course, we switched to the BDUs, and then if, then we switched to our flight suits. I think the flight suits were probably around the the Korean War. They started, you know, getting towards a flight suit, and then they refined them in the Vietnam War. And then we've pretty much had the same flight suit up until recently whenever they switched over from a one-piece flight suit to the two-piece uh, operational camouflage. So mm. it's the, you know, the multi-cam or whatever they, you know, you want to call it. We called yeah. it OCP or other camouflage pattern. I see. Yeah. <laughs> so For those of you not familiar with military, it is all acronyms. Yes. So I will try not to speak in acronyms, <laughs> but... yeah. But it's hard. But the majority of uh, majority of things in the military are given acronyms, and even even things that there are acronyms within acronyms. There are acronyms of acronyms, and it's a mess. So a bunch of alphabet soup. Yes, like IJC was hmm. ISAF Joint, you know, Joint uh, Command, and their ISO. So what does ISAF stand for? Yeah. And that, you know, for those of you who remember, that was back when General Petraeus was, uh, you know, the commander over in Afghanistan. So he was in charge of ISAF. Hmm. General Petraeus. Did you ever meet him? I think so. Hmm. I didn't like go up and shake his hand or anything, but I was in the same room and, you yeah. know, had briefings and such. Yeah, fair enough. Not always rubbing elbows with everybody every time, all the time. Although I guess at the Pentagon, you probably would be. Yeah, yeah. 
I can't think of any funny stories right now, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure that uh, there's there's all kinds of stories about you. You walk out in the hall and, you know, whenever you're a, a baby airman or, you know, something like that, you know, you're a second lieutenant and you see a colonel and you're like, oh, my goodness, it's a colonel. What do I do? <laughs> well, then you get to the Pentagon and you walk out and there's a four-star general. And <laughs> there's walking around. like two of them walking together and you're like, oh, okay. I walked into a room once and I think I counted like, you know, 40 stars. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I remember I, I was uh, I was an E4 in the, um, in the Navy and our – the captain of our boat, he was uh, what would be the equivalent of a major. So he was a, a captain. He was an 04. Yeah, an 04, yeah. So it was it was different just because I had you know, I'd seen you and, and been to the Pentagon before. So I'd seen a lot of the, a lot of the shiny, bright pins and stars and so on. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that as an 04. Run your, have your own boat and all that good stuff. He was a good man too. My, yeah. cap, my first captain, he was really good. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, the, the Marines and the Army look at, uh, rank a little bit differently because mm-hmm. they'll send a, a lieutenant out to, you know, be in charge of, you know, 20, 30 guys in a platoon. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. you know, an Air Force sends a captain to go fly and enlist a guy to go refuel an airplane. So. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we were, t- we talked about it a while ago and summarized it kind of pretty well, I think, where it said the, you know, the Marines, the enlisted, the enlisted people do, you know, do the fun stuff and the uh, officers do a lot of the administrative and, uh, uh, managerial things, whereas the Air Force, the officers get to do all the fun stuff and the enlisted do a lot of the, uh, not necessarily managerial, but a lot of the administrative things. Yes. <laughs> So, back to the uniforms, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, the the uniforms that we were always primarily concerned with were, were your utility uniforms, what we call them. Uh, then you go into your uh, administrative uniforms, you know, what uh, the Army calls your Class A's. You know, speaking of the Army, they have, you know, a couple different sets of uh, Class A's. The Navy has even more. Yeah. The Air Force just has one. You know, you have your 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 blues, and that's it. Right. And uh, those, I, th- I remember seeing. You know, I don't know the detailed history on there, but I do know that uh, starting in the in the late '80s, we started morphing those uniforms quite a bit, and uh-huh. uh, that was a, a bone of contention among a lot of Air Force Air Force personnel at the time. Hmm. So, I mean, we. We changed to with epaulets, without epaulets, you know, with a, with a stripe around the arm, with a, you know, with, uh, you know, you know, rank like the army, rank like the navy. I mean, mm-hmm. we went all over the map. Wow. But, so that's neither here nor there. That's over with. And now we're progressing on to even, you know, more uniforms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, how are those uniforms? Um, well, the last one I had was fairly comfortable. But uh, a lot of people, you know, collect those old uniforms. You know, you go to uh, army surplus uh, stores and things like that mm-hmm. and uh, find some of the old uniforms. And some of those can actually be quite valuable. Yeah, I know the um, the Marines and I'm 
what was it, the Marines and Army uniform in Vietnam was super popular for a really long time. That uh, jungle, um, was it BDUs? BDUs, battle yeah, dress uniforms. Battle dress uniforms. That one is super popular. That's the uh, that's the camouflage print you see a lot in, or all the time in uh, different war movies, and especially, obviously, Vietnam war movies, things like that. I heard a funny story from a, a guy at one of the flea markets. Oh, yeah. And he was, you know, he had all the military surplus. Yeah. And I said, well, how'd you get all that? And he goes, well, I go, what'd you go get at auctions or guys sell that to you? And he goes, no, I was a supply officer over in Vietnam. <laughs> and he goes, uh, we were at the end of the war. Yeah. And my colonel told me to get rid of this stuff as quick as I could, however I wanted to. There you go. So I sent 70 bags of surplus uniforms, parts, everything home. He <laughs> goes, I found a C-130 guy yeah. who is like, you know, hauling, you know, cargo. And he goes, hey, can I fit these bags on there? And he goes, sure. And so they arranged it so that my brother could meet them at the base and unload those 70 bags worth of gear and then put them into his dairy farm barn <laughs> and he goes i still have a barn full oh my goodness of army surplus that is incredible talk <laughs> talk about getting lucky <laughs> and you know that happened oh you, all know, the time. you saw the, the 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 footage of them pushing helicopters over the 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 deck of the ship because mm-hmm. they needed to make room for more helicopters to land with refugees. Yeah. Oh, about the the supply uh, system for the military, you can literally buy anything on it. Literally. When I when I say literally, I mean I do mean literally like anything you could possibly think of. They have it listed. I mean, you can't necessarily get everything because it's, you have to have you know justified reasoning and so on and so forth. But Actually, actually, anything you can think of. I mean, I remember, uh, they they showed uh, you could order um, different types of trained dogs on the on the um, supply site for the submarine that that uh, the logistics uh, logistics techs had uh, access to. But I always thought that was so wild. So. Those logistics people, though, especially in the military. If you're in the military, especially if you're a uh, lower-ranked, um, you know, E4 or below, uh, make friends with your supply and logistics officers um, and or any logistics um, enlisted person. They are definitely the people to know. Well, and as we've found out here recently, logistics is what makes the world go round. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, even in our small, small little business, uh, you know, Getting things from here to there. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely, that's definitely impacted us. Getting us, you know, get, getting our, our inventory from one place to another is, has definitely been at least a little bit more challenging. I thought that was an interesting story about the, about the uniforms. And, uh, man, that guy had everything you would ever, you know, want to go hunting or fishing with. <laughs> yeah. That but makes I, perfect sense. There's a guy in our booth that, uh, Oldies but goodies. He has some old uniforms like that. I don't think he has any. He's got some cool Boy Scout uniforms and the old Cub Scout uniforms, but he, you know, he doesn't have any of the old, uh, you know, actual World War II. And if I could get my hands on a World War II bomber jacket, 
Those are valuable for yeah. sure. Those are those are super collectible, and they've been used in lots of different movies and things like that too. Well, a lot of those are reproductions, but well, yeah. Uh, we had talked. Our mom and I talked um, previously about the difference between reproductions and the originals, and a lot of times the reproductions are you know they're well made, especially if it's a well made reproduction. But right, you know they they're and I will say is for especially for things something like clothing, like uh, bomber jackets. Um, clothing does deteriorate over time. So if you were, if you were to find a, a bomber jacket, even an, an authentic bomber jacket, even in pristine condition, you know, you, you wouldn't want to wear it because it's, you know, it's pretty old. So if you started wearing it, it would wear out real quickly, regardless of the condition it's currently in. Well, speaking of flight jackets, my leather jacket, you know, cause when you fly, you, you get issued a leather jacket. Yeah. So they only used to offer them to the pilots. Mm. And then eventually they offered them to the navigators. Mm. And then finally, you know, they started offering them to any air crew. Oh, okay. But uh, whenever I got mine, because they always said to order them four sizes too big, hmm. because they were very, very tight in the sleeves. They were made for, you know, a string bean. You know, <laughs> no, no allowance for shoulders, for any sort of belly or anything, uh-huh. you know. And so when I ordered mine, I ordered, you know, I wear like a 44 or 46. Yeah. And I had to order a 50. Really? And a 50 long, and it barely fit me. <laughs> but the cool thing about it is because it was a special order, you know, how the, you have the military issue tags in our in our clothing. Yeah. It had my name in the military issue. Wow. So that was pretty cool. That's fancy. So nobody could steal my jacket. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> That's really cool. So that was that was an interesting tidbit. Oh, for sure. So there was a story you told earlier that I want you to tell again. It was pretty interesting. So you've had a pretty pretty cool career over twenty five years, I guess. Realistically, you're still you're still working very 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 similarly to what you were before you retired. Well, I'm a defense contractor, but I'm not doing what I was when I retired. Oh, okay. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> right. But uh, no, I was telling telling Aram here about uh, it's always interesting to kind of have to be in charge of uh, other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, different styles of leadership and uh, things like that. And I remember, I'll change the name so that nobody's feelings will get hurt here. But, uh, <laughs> you know, let's just say Bob was uh, one of my younger captains. I was a major at the time. And uh, I was in charge of all the all the captains and all of, you know, all of our operations. So I had a shift of about uh, 11 p.m. to 3 in the afternoon. Or, you know, so that's quite a long day. Mm-hmm. It's over a 12-hour shift. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I had that because I had to launch all the airplanes and start doing the recovery for those. And then the other guys would come in and recover the jets and prep them and get them ready for the next day's uh, missions. Right. So we had a bunch of flight publications, which we call FLIP, you know, short for flight in-flight pu- publications. Well, we invert, you know, acronyms all the time, so it's FLIP. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we have different approach plates for flying instrument procedures into different airfields in case we had to 
you know, run out of gas or get shot at or whatever, we would have to divert. And so you needed to know how to land at those places. Mm-hmm. And you had to know about the different airways, different airspace, different terrain, you know, all kinds, you know, pilots know what flip is and they know what notums are, which is notices to airmen. But, right. uh, so we had all of that stuff. Well, we were in a supply shortage and for some reason, we got our monthly publication of Flip before everybody else. And if they sent us like triple of what we ordered. Well, we, you know, me, I said, hey, you know, Bob, I need you to put together our crew bags for our crews. And then all the excess, you take it over to the wing and give it to them so they can distribute to for their critical flyers. So that, you know, that's a safety of flight kind of thing. Well, I roll in the next day mm-hmm. and much to my chagrin, all of this publication data is sitting on the floor in the trailer just like it was, except for there may have been about one or two crew bags built. Oh. And I said... And the other guy's name was George. And I said, hey, George, um, did Bob say why he didn't take this stuff over to the wing? He said, oh, he said that he would get to it. And I said, well, I think that me and Bob are going to have to have some words. (laughs) Yeah. So the next day, Bob rolls in. You know, he's got his... Cole in his hand, his flight meal in his hand, you know, his, his to-go box. Right. And uh, he rolls in and I go, well, and in the meantime, I had told the, uh, the ops officer, I said, hey, listen, um, Bob did not do what I asked him to do. And I'm going to have to, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, uh, read in the riot act. Yeah. And he goes, oh, I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so... The uh, operations officer, you know, and I roll in on Bob, mm-hmm. and uh, I tell him, I say, "Hey, Bob, I don't understand why all of this flight publications is still sitting here when I asked you. No, I told you to take this over to the ops to the wing whenever you're done with it." And he says, "Oh, but I thought you." I go, "No, I didn't ask you to think. I asked you to do." <laughs> and he kind of looks at me and I said, I, I, I said, so there's other guys out there who are flying missions today mm-hmm. without current flight publications because you did not do what I asked you to do. So if, if somebody does not have the right approach play to right, you know, clearance, that is, you know, our fault because we should have shared this last night for mm-hmm. those missions. And uh, he kind of looks at me like, wow. I said, so I can send you home right now. I can send you home with a bad report. I don't have to give you, you know, we all, we used to get letters of of evaluation on our deployments, Mm -hmm. you know, for, you know, how many sorties we flew, how much, you know, what we did to, you know, to get points for our promotion system. Right. And I told him, I said, I don't have to do any of that. As a matter of fact, I can give you negative for what you have done. Mm-hmm. Said, and I almost should, but I'm going to give you one chance. All right. I said, so when it, by the time I get back here tomorrow, all of that has to be gone and it, and you need to do it correctly. And, uh, the funny part of the story 
is when I, when we walked out, the director of operations, he goes, oh man, you were too easy on him. <laughs> and the next morning, whenever I came in and, uh, George was sitting there and he goes, oh man, I heard that you rolled into Bob. <laughs> Bob told us that you just read him the riot act. He goes, you know, but major rice was so nice about it. I can't even be mad at him. <laughs> So it just yeah. proves that you can be stern but tactful at the same time. Absolutely. I think that's a lost art. A lot of people are, are very convinced that uh, you need to be brash, vulgar, or, the, or or one way or the other in order to get your point across in a very um, distinguished manner. Uh, I, I think, uh, I mean, growing up, obviously, mom, her her stance on curse words was always, you know, if you're, if you're constantly using curse words, it's a... It's a uh, a meter of your intelligence, basically. You know, if you don't have the other words, the vocabulary to use to describe your to describe what you're feeling, other than you know those choice those few choice words, then you don't necessarily you're not uh, getting your point across. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. But uh, but yeah, no, I definitely think that uh, that that is a lost art. Being able to be poignant and make a point without necessarily having to be vulgar. That's not to that's not to knock anybody that uses vulgarity or whatever, but... But, so we digress. Yeah, we digress again. We do that a lot. Well, I don't know why. I think it's you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what are we talking about now? So we talked about the uniforms. We talked about the different uh, tools that you've kind of seen um, move forward. Well, so. nowadays they have uh, some incredible stuff. You know, our... Uh, our airplanes, we switched to uh, the, you know, we we, had, we went from two navigators to one navigator because we started getting the, the global positioning systems, you know, the stuff that, you know, your Waze uses GPS. And, you know, so we started getting uh, multiple independent systems and, you know, things like that. I have a visitor here. Yeah, uh, Toad, my cat, decided to jump up and be a part of today's episode <laughs> um and of course he's being a traitor and going and sitting in front of dad that's right uh-huh. but uh so we went from one from two navigators to one navigator because of our updated systems and uh they changed the rules on you know what it's required to be to you know why when you needed a navigator and when you didn't so mm-hmm. but uh you know they went from Another cool thing is our our platform had uh, a star tracker. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so the airplane would track the stars by itself. Huh. There's not a, not a lot of airplanes that have that. Wow. And so does it just track the position of the stars or Yeah, the what what it does is it gives you your your actual true heading. So in reference to uh, you know, obviously true north is your reference for everything in flying. Mm-hmm. And if you know what you're, you're no kidding true heading, then that gives you your position so that you know where you're at within a matter of feet. All right. You know, not, not miles, but feet. That's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's what, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of people strive to attain and, and, but, uh, you know, we had that stellar unit that would track the stars even in the daylight. Wow. It had, and that's, uh, that's automated, you said? It's automated. It would shoot a new star like under 10 minutes. <laughs> that's incredible. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that was pretty cool. 
Oh, that sounds pretty cool. I think uh, for for reference, um, at least from from the, my perspective on the submarines, we had um, different tracking tools and stuff like that, and and we had different rates. Um, rates are basically the the positions or jobs that you have on a submarine. A lot of uh, what we were saying earlier with the officers versus enlisted doing the you know the fun jobs or, or whatever it's it's a pretty pretty well evenly split i would say in the navy most of the, uh, the officers and the enlisted guys a lot of them do very similar things just the officers a lot of times have, have more responsibility and things uh kind of fall on them uh, that's that's true for for most all the branches but the different rates on the submarines have changed over the years um the and one that uh, that kind of reminded me of is uh, quartermaster. So there used to be a rate called quartermaster. There wasn't when I got in, but I got told about it. Quartermaster used to chart all of the um, topography on the bottom of the ocean, because obviously we we dive you know we dive pretty deep. Uh, we usually we usually run at a uh, pretty deep depth, if you will. And so a lot of uh, the ocean floor is very mountainous or hilly, and um, uh, this may surprise some of you, but there's not any submarine, or excuse me, there's not any any windows on submarines. So yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, if we had a window, then uh, we would die. Right. But uh, so these uh, these guys basically they would use they would use sonar. Or, you know, they still use sonar, but they use passive or active sonar, and that's a whole different thing. But they generally use passive sonar because you're trying to stay quiet to basically to, to track the topology or where the sound waves are reflecting of the things that are around the submarine. There's a lot of different uh, movies about submarines, you know, Red Dawn and, you know, all these other different uh, very production movies of, of uh, submarines but uh, what's funny is there's a, a comedy called Down Periscope and Down Periscope is one of the more accurate of all of the submarine movies that I've ever seen <laughs> yeah that's funny <laughs> yeah but well. uh, anyways the quartermaster he, he charts out the topology of the, the ocean floor and now that um, now that uh position is a navigation technician or nav tech and they still chart with the paper charts or the paper charts but but uh they they do everything now on a computer all of the paper charts that they had got in the past have been loaded onto computers and so basically every inch of the ocean floor has been charted at one point or another right well that's uh you know i was going to point out that uh, if you're flying in an airplane over the ocean at night, mm-hmm. there's no discernible horizon, so it looks like you're staring into blackness. And you may be able to see the stars, you know, but it kind of fades into the into the horizon over there. So, you know, it can be quite disorienting. So that's why we use the instruments, especially at night, and uh, that's why they rely so heavily upon the the you know the the compasses and the, and the you know the sextant back when we had those and the you know, all the navigation techniques because, mm-hmm. you know, there's no nothing to see on the radar. There's nothing to see out the window. It's almost like you don't need windows because you can't see anything anyway. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, so that that's quite fun. 
Yeah, that sounds like it. I think it's interesting uh, the uh, what we were talking about with the different uniform changes that the you know, the technology changed based or the the technology of the uniform changed based on the technology around it. You know, I think we were talking about the bombers in World War Two being basically ice boxes versus the you know the planes that you were you were on that I mean they weren't climate controlled were they? But it was well. We had a couple upgrades during my tenure there, and uh, we had some significant modifications to the climate control system because we had a lot of equipment on board that needed to stay cool. At the same time, you didn't want to freeze the air crew. So I remember when we first had the jets, the pilots and the and the front end crew is what we called them would be. And we we had a we had you know thermometers, and you know we would be at. 90 degrees up front. It would be, you know, minus 50 outside. Wow. So we'd be at 90 degrees up front, and you could walk through the airplane and go to the back, and it was minus 10. Jeez. So from the fro- so within 100 feet or so, you had that temperature span. <laughs> and so they, they eventually fixed that, but, uh, you know, it, it's much better now. Wow. But I remember. Do you know why that was? Well, yeah, it's because of all the equipment and the way the air conditioner had to run, and you know, hmm. they didn't have a lot of heat diverted to the uh, the air crew, and it, and all the heat that was, you know, going to keep the the equipment at the right temperature was, you know, diverted to the equipment, and then all the rest of that went up front. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, the submarine's mostly cold. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much the whole way through. Uh, I mean, it's it, thankfully it's not the te- it's not the temperature of the water around it, but they they keep it a pretty uh, pretty consistent. Uh, I wouldn't say cold, but I, I, it might even be comfortable. I mean, you, I guess you get used to it realistically because yeah. it's the same temperature all the time. Right. But uh, I, I will say, waking up from that, you definitely feel the the difference in temperature. I would bring a, a down comforter underway, and uh, you know. On submarines, you sleep in. Uh, I like to call them coffins. They're uh, they're like these little boxes, and you know, I'm 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 six feet tall, and uh, my my foot, the bottom of my feet, and the top of my head, if I stretched out all the way, it's about almost exactly six feet, maybe even a little bit less, because my head and my feet would hit uh, both ends of it. Um, and it's about a foot and a half of uh, um, clearance between you and the bunk, the bunk, the bunk above you. And if you didn't bring, uh, a lot of guys used to bring sleeping bags until they banned those. I'm not quite sure why they banned them. I think it was uh, it had to do with space or something like that. But uh, sleeping bags made the most sense because uh, on underway we hot, we hot rack, which means that uh, three guys share two racks. So you have two guys that that um, that are in in two different racks, and then one guy floats in between those two. And uh, a lot of times you literally float, so you'd either wait. Wait until one guy went to sleep and then sleep a little less, or you would go to sleep. You would go to sleep at the time you're supposed to sleep, and then get woken up in the middle of your sleep to move to then move to the lower rack to finish your sleep. So, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting, but um, I like sleeping in the cold. I like sleeping with a fan on, and I will say that was some of the best sleep because it was really really cold um, outside, and then under the down comforter, I was. Nice and snug, and then, but I, I was getting up out of that. It's terrible. Oh yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, we uh, 
we used to call them, uh, you know, whenever we would do a, a, a crew swap, we would have to take the, uh, the one, our, our one jets that didn't have a lot of equipment in there. And, uh, the back of those would be super, super cold because those were not geared for, you know, any heating and air conditioning. And right. so at the floor level, it would be 10 degrees. Mm. At the ceiling level, it would be 100 degrees. Sheesh. So you stand up and you're like in four climate zones. <laughs> and we'd sleep on the floor and you'd wake up and, you know, of course we had sleeping bags. And you would be, you know, your nose would almost be frostbit. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And then you'd stand up and you're like, oh, I'm hot. <laughs> yeah, that is quite a that is quite a climate change. Yeah. Wow. How many times would you do crew changes? Did you do that while you were in the air? No, this was to whenever we would fly over there. Oh, okay. Because the way, you know, we have uh, regulations that determine how many hours we can fly per month. Oh, right. And so, and, you know, the aircraft have limitations on how many hours they can go between, you know, like a car, how many hours between an oil change, a tire change. Right. You know, so they have maintenance uh, limitations. Just like your, you know, your little Cessnas have 100-hour inspections, you know, right. that a qualified mechanic has to do if you're an aircraft owner. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure what the, what they are now, but I know there's a 100-hour inspection that you have to do, you know, every 100 hours, you know, to go pay a, a, ma- a mechanic to go through and do certain procedures. Interesting. Just like Well, that life. makes sense, especially, I mean, from, from an aircraft from an aircraft perspective, I think if you are crashing an aircraft, there's a very good chance you'll die. So I feel like maintaining those is uh, pretty important, especially not oh, yeah. just not just for your safety, but you know for anybody else. Because if an aircraft goes down in like a city or something like that, well, and the fact of the matter is, is those airplanes are are not cheap. Oh no! Well, no airplane's cheap. No, not at all. I don't, I've not seen a cheap airplane. You can get a little, an old Cessna for you know twenty thirty grand. Well. I mean, that's not that bad. <laughs> Cheap, oh. Cheaper than your sports car. Yeah, yeah. Although, how far would those? How far do those go? Would it even be worth it? If you, could you go overseas with it? A Cessna? Yeah. No, like, no, no. They're for popping around from, you know, you'd have to take a lot of different uh, hops. I mean, but I, I went from, when I was getting my pilot license, my civilian pilot license, mm-hmm. I went from Stillwater, Oklahoma to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And then I went and got gas in like Seminole. Mm-hmm. And then I went over to Altus. And then I popped back up to Oklahoma City. Wow. And then I came back to Stillwater. There you go. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. That's fun. Yeah. And I know a guy who uh, he would fly his little Cessna from Stillwater to Guymon. You know, to go watch the game or do whatever. Really? Oh yeah. Huh. That makes I, sense, actually. I mean, it's all you know. They, they, you know, they're not too bad on gas. They can go a couple hours. And when you're flying at 120 miles an hour, you go pretty far. Yeah, yeah, you could definitely go pretty far at 120 miles an hour. Although, that's a, that's as fast as they go. Well, some only go 100. Some only go 80. Some only go 60. Some only go. Some will go 250. Some will go 300. But uh, you you probably don't know. But there's actually speed limits in the air. What? Yes. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you have speed limits in the air? So you oh, don't I run into it. people. I hate it. <laughs> so under 10,000 feet, you're you're only allowed to go 250 knots. I believe is what it is. 
Oh wow! So, what if you? What, what's is there no speed limit past a certain? Once you get about height? once you get above ten thousand feet, then it's controlled airspace. So it's whatever the controllers let you go. Oh. So that's why your airliners are up at forty-one thousand feet, cruising at five hundred knots. Or not 500 knots, about 500 miles per hour and about probably 300 or 380 true. Wow. Or something like that. Isn't, uh, I think, what is it? There's a variation in time um, depending on your altitude, right? I think it's, uh, it's, it's, you're actually, you're at less time in the air or you're, you're not at the present. I oh, mean, I was reading something the other day about this, about the the variation in time versus of uh, being on the ground versus being in the air. You, I know nothing about that. You know that. nothing about that. Okay. No, I think that's a conspiracy theory. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, the the what I remember about it was it had something to do with gravity. The fact that uh, the gravity's you know um, pulling you harder the closer you are to the ground. So the same, technically, you're older, you know, the, the your feet are older than your head some, somehow, just a, a very small fraction or something like that. Yeah, another digression here is uh, I've actually flown backwards. Really? I got into a spot where the headwinds were greater than my speed. So hmm. it was actually, I was still flying because I was, you know, flying above the stall speed. But yet I was going slow enough that the wind was pushing me backwards. Ah. Uh, yeah. That is a very, very weird, and this, this voice is weird too. You know what I'm thinking it is? What? I think it's the TV upstairs. Could be. Yeah. Or it could be a cell phone. Could be a cell phone. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, I appreciate you doing this. This is fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I thought of one funny thing, but then we got sidetracked, and then I forgot it. So. Oh man! Well, yeah. you'll have to think about it. Yeah. But next I, time you should uh, talk to Mr. John from uh, Oldies but Goodies. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely gonna talk to him tomorrow. See if he'll uh, see if he'll come out, and we can talk about uh, his experiences in the antique market and his. Uh, and uh, John from our our shop in. Um, downtown Fredericksburg, oldies but goodies. He's a really interesting guy. He, uh, he was, a, he's basically a picker. If you guys know the show American Pickers, it was on Discovery Channel for a long time. That's something he did for a very long time and, and him and his wife, uh, kind of d- decided to settle a little bit and they bought a shop or at least, or they leased a shop in downtown Fredericksburg, which they then lease out plots in and that's where we are. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so they're, they're real interesting. They, they have a pretty good knowledge base from a lot of, from a lot of different, uh, stuff, a lot of different history and antiques. And, um, they give a, a really interesting perspective. So, um, if you guys, uh, listen up, hopefully, um, the next episode, you guys will hear from him. Um, thanks guys so much for listening. Thanks again, dad, for, for filling in. I think it was really fun. I think he said, yeah, told some cool stories, huh? All right. Sounds good. All right, everybody stay hip and stay humble. All right, thanks.